welcome to Columbus Business First Crisis Management Podcast about senior business through the coronavirus pandemic. I'm reporter Carrie Ghosh, and today's guest is Mayo Pujols, who moved to Columbus in the spring to become the CEO of Andalin Biosciences. Nationwide Children's Hospital formed this affiliate company to take over what had been in-house production of the genetic material that's used in gene therapy. The hospital is taking what had been part of its nonprofit research institute and making this a for-profit company so that it can scale up to handle the much larger volumes that are needed for clinical trials and eventual commercial production of these type of therapies. To that end, Andalin is building a $100 million, 180,000 square foot manufacturing facility on Ohio State's Innovation District on the West Campus. That sounds like a very huge building, these very, very tiny things. We caught up with Pujols to talk about changing the mindset of a nonprofit workforce to a for-profit workforce, while at the same time confronting an advancing pandemic. Thanks, as always, for listening. Welcome to Business First. Today's guest is Mayo Pujols, who is the new CEO of Andalin Biosciences, which is a spinoff from Nationwide Children's Hospital, well, affiliate of Nationwide Children's Hospital, that is building a $100 million gene therapy manufacturing facility. So there's a a lot to get into here. We're going to give everybody a biology lesson along the way, as well as a business lesson. So um, how are you doing? How how have you uh, settled into Columbus? I'm doing great. I moved to Columbus in May, uh, mid-May. So the weather was great. It was, as you may recall, a great summer in Columbus. I moved downtown. So I got an opportunity to move right into the city, close to work, and really got to see as much as I could. Even with COVID, you can still go out with your mask and, you know, um, partake in the, the joys of the city, in particular, the whole area around the river. I really enjoyed that, going for walks. Um, I've since moved to Powell in October, so I am uh, certainly ingrained in Ohio, but I'm no longer in the city, and I'm doing very well with my family. We're all here. You had uh, teenage sons. They moved too, or are they in college? Yeah, they moved too. Yeah, I have two sons, um, a high school age one senior who's mostly doing, um, as you can imagine, uh, his work through remote uh, online learning. And I have a 20-year-old as well who's uh, considering going back to college, probably also remote in the in the spring semester. So let's talk about Andolin. Children's is a pioneer in um, the field of gene therapy, which is uh, basically treating rare inherited diseases um, you know, starting often with these uh, uh, terrible fatal diseases, inserting a modified non-virulent virus that injects a corrected copy of the missing gene into the body. And so we have at uh, at least one of them that's uh, been approved and is now on the market. Um, And that is helping with a fatal genetic condition that used to kill Babies born with it, but generally by age two. Uh, and now they've got subjects who are running around, happy yeah. toddlers and five-year-olds. So the problem is that takes a lot, a lot, a lot of viruses that have to be engineered and replicated in 
these kind of clean room labs. Am I stop me if I'm no, that's correct. Uh, no, you're describing you're it correct. yes. incorrectly. So mm -hmm. the, you've broken ground on the facility and it looks like the facility is much larger and you're investing more. Uh, so there's a critical need for this material, not only from children's, but from other pharmaceutical biotech companies and researchers. So how has the project evolved since you came on board? Yeah, I mean, I would say it, it certainly has evolved even from when I joined in May. I mean, when I joined, we still had, the, of course, the idea of expanding capacity and uh, serving the needs of now commercial clients, not just clinical clients. And uh, when I say evolve, one of the things that we have been really keen on is speaking to each one of our clients around their technology needs. Not everyone uses the same type of technology or platform or process to produce their specific viruses for their treatments. So really getting to understand what their needs were in terms of uh, amount, so capacity in terms of technology, time frame was really important because we really want to serve those clients that are transitioning from late phase clinical to commercial. So in the last few months, we really have embarked on that and that really has shaped a lot of the decisions around the ultimate size of the facility uh, in that 190,000 square foot range. That's our first phase of the facility is that size. And, and also what technologies we'll put in there uh, as well, you know, to serve those clients. So it's really been an evolution and mostly from listening to the needs of our client. So it, it's amazing that, you know, to produce something so tiny, you know, can't be seen with the naked eye that it takes that much space. Uh, what kind of equipment uh, is going in there? Or, or yeah, so, um, a lot of the equipment will, will seem familiar to folks that maybe um, have heard of monoclonal antibodies, have heard of vaccines, even some of the more recent like COVID vaccines that are coming out soon. We use bioreactors. We use different types of them. One is a suspension type where the cells are exactly that, suspended in media. Uh, and another one is an adherent type of reactor where the cells actually want to adhere to a surface. And then you continuously replenish them with nutrients and grow them that way to produce the virus. And um, so we're really keen on making sure we have the right technology. A big reason for the size of the facility is today with the technology that we have, the the yields that we get, it takes a lot of cells uh, to produce, like you said, a small amount of virus. So we do need, you know, really the game is either improve yield, which we're working on di diligently, or have the right amount of size and capacity of um, your equipment to get the, the yields that way. So we're kind of have a parallel track. One is make sure we have enough for those processes that are not likely to get that much better but also look into the future where products will be able to yield a lot more and we won't need as much of the volume of the equipment. So a lot of the equipment we're buying, for example, will allow us to go for a range of size, of batch size, um, with that in mind, right? We might be able to start large and get smaller and smaller as the yields improve. But that is one of the big reasons why everything is so large today. Did you say a flask size, like little vials? Actually, Think of our, our sizes are either like 2,000 liter scale, so much larger than a flask, mm -hmm. and um, smallest might be in the couple of liters, 
but many units that are a couple of liters looked hooked together. So that's sort of the range. It's a very large range that we work in. Wow. Okay. And that would be a, a batch for say a clinical trial or yes, correct. Uh, and then it would be repackaged yeah, and ultimately, dosages. Yeah. And ultimately um in, in a you know a batch might yield a few doses all the way to a few hundred. And um those larger sizes would be needed for any kind of commercial product where you have, uh, even though these are rare indications, you still have a number of patients that need it. So it, it would be able to supply for, you know, those types of populations. So we would need the larger size. So until this uh, massive facility comes online, you are using the current equipment that is inside the hospital's research yeah. institute, uh, making much smaller batches. So the company is up and running. You've got oh, yeah. about yeah, yeah. 100 employees already. We are at 120. We keep growing. Last time we spoke, we were about 100. We're at about 120 employees that are fully dedicated to the mission of Andalin. And you are absolutely right. We have been operating. Actually, most folks don't realize it for almost 15 years, starting from a very small operation in the research institute to this team of 120 folks dedicated to serving many biotech companies and uh, ultimately those patients that are getting those clinical trial. Uh, treatments. We are right now in this in the range of preclinical through phase three. So even the last most advanced phase of a clinical trial, and then with the new facility, we would be capable of actually being uh, able to go commercial as well, not just phase three. But yeah, we're producing in the current facility and serving those clients with uh, different technologies and, and have a very strong plan to transition to the new facility. You started mid-pandemic, um, yeah. you know, the, when we thought we had flattened the curve, transitioning over um, the operations that had been all part of the Research Institute into its own private for-profit company. First, how does that transition go? Is it diff- is, was it difficult or pretty seamless for the employees to, you know, is there a fundamentally different mindset between we are working for a nonprofit research hospital to we are now a true business, yet our bottom line is to serve that hospital's research. Right. Is that a big transition? And then if you could discuss, sorry, I'm making a two-part question. Okay. Uh, and then if you could discuss how pandemics and shutdowns and I'm sure everybody's in productive gear already because you have to, you're working with very pure biological materials, but is, were there additional safety concerns layered onto that? Did it, did you have to shut down? Yeah. So let me take it maybe as you said, a two, two part question. The first question around the transition, it, it certainly has been a journey. Um, the hundred or so employees that we had starting the year certainly were more geared to the mindset of research, academic type of endeavors, really supporting clinical trials, but being very cognizant of being flexible in that, you know, the process is not defined. We have to do a lot of optimization and a lot of changes and really be adaptable because it is research, right? And problems arise and you have to really have that problem solving hat on. And we don't want to lose that, by the way. So as we've transitioned, to a for-profit geared towards commercial company, the, I think the add-on for our team has been more of the, the mindset of scalability and the mindset of uh, it is important to think about it as a business, right? Cost control, and, but also the right investments, having the right systems, 
And a big transition has been also in, in terms of our quality mindset. We were very, always, I think, extremely fortunate to have had a very strong quality mindset, having been part of uh, a children's hospital. Patient was always number one. Every decision that was made always took the patient into account as the, the first priority. And so we have a great strong foundation, and that now has morphed into a, a more even expanded uh, investment in the systems that ensure we have quality. So one of the transitions the team has felt over the last few months, and it's a positive, but it required a lot of work, is that rather than just having quality as you know a mindset and you have to do quality work, we actually put the systems in place to ensure quality is engineered into everything we do, the documentation system, the changes, so change control, training, our document control, inventory control, so systems like SAP, that um, you, you would need to buy materials and release materials. So we've kind of took it a step further in preparation for being a, a commercial entity. And that's been new to the team. So uh, they've been evolving and getting used to adding that on to their toolbox. So overall, I think it's been certainly not um, status quo. It has been a learning for the team and, um, and they've done really well in, in going through that transition. COVID certainly um, affected us. As it hit, we were just wrapping up our production and we were going into a number of months of shutdown to um, modify the existing facility so we could do the late phase, the phase three production and add some additional capabilities. So we were in a situation where we were fortunate that we were gonna shut down, but we caught the tail end of COVID and certainly had to modify how we worked. Throughout the summer, we adopted, like the hospital and the research institute, a lot of extra controls around allowing employees to work remotely uh, and really encouraging that because we wanted to minimize the density of our staff that had to come in and work on the facility modifications. We uh, restarted back up in September, so we're producing again after all the modifications. And we have continued with you know, those modifications to the schedule and to the staffing and how we work to ensure the safety of our employees. And like most companies, we have had employees who have come down with COVID and there's collateral, you know, folks that have to go out on quarantine. So we have really learned from that. We take a lot of controls around how we restructured the work in terms of masking, keeping the distance and really minimizing the density in meetings and things like that. But even with all of those controls, you still have to sometimes react to it. More recently, we are starting to now see impacts from our suppliers. And I think we're not alone. Um, a lot of the suppliers either stopped producing for a period of time or had drawn down their inventories. So we have certainly seen an impact uh, and we've really been managing our inventory very carefully. We were able to do a little bit of stockpiling, but not probably enough to say we're out of the woods. So it, hurt, it certainly has had an impact on us and we continue to, I, I say manage it month to month. Every month we're assessing, do we need to enhance our practices to keep our team safe, to keep uh, our supply going so we can serve our clients and the patients. So given that what you're doing can you know restore or preserve muscle movement or even be literally life or, life or death, did that shutdown affect any, any ongoing research or trials? Um, no, thankfully, no. So we, we planned it all around the, the client campaigns that we had. So we basically had 
identified a window in which we could move either production earlier or do it starting in September. So we were able to kind of create this window to be able to do those very critical facility modifications. So no, thankfully we weren't able to, we didn't affect any, any patient trials or there was no lack of supply there. And this is why with COVID now, we're really keen on, you know, we're not, we don't have the luxury of stopping any production. We know who's at the other end waiting for these treatments. And so we do everything we can to keep uh, the operations uh, up and running at all times, you know, 24-7. And um, very creative in how we get everything scheduled and, and keep our people safe so they can work. Given that, as you mentioned, the equipment is, is similar, would your facilities ever be, say, commandeered or, or, or pivot to producing like a, a COVID treatment, a monoclonal antibody, or even a vaccine? Or is that just too far out of your mission? No, it's interesting that you bring that up. I mean, we've been approached by, by clients with, that are doing COVID research, that are looking for therapies that they're working. That maybe some, they have a unique way to produce it versus some of the larger vaccine manufacturers. So because we are certainly, it's an area that we can, um, we can serve them. We have the same type of know-how and equipment. So uh, producing for COVID, we, you know, we would do it if it's needed. It's not, I say, our core for us, but it is certainly at the end of the day, we're here to improve human health. Whether it's a gene therapy or whether it's a COVID vaccine, we will certainly be open to, to serving, you know, ultimately that client and those patients. Speaking of clients, I mean, Children's obviously is well known and, and the yeah. fact that they have this capability, but how is the name Andolin, how's the name recognition and, and is the audience growing? Yeah, so we, we've taken quite a few efforts in the last few months to increase name recognition. So to your point, when you mentioned Nationwide Children's Hospital, the gene therapy community immediately knows who they are and what they've done and, and the capabilities that, are, that exist there. Andalin was a name that was, as you know, selected from our two, two key patients that were the first in the clinical trial. So not a lot of folks really realize Andalin is connected to NCH and how we're that affiliate. So we've been doing some efforts around our website, around advertising, and, and just getting the name out there. We had had about 100 clients or so, so all of them have now come on board with realizing our name change and who we are and why we've chosen the name. And they've been all been very happy about that as well and given us good feedback. But, um, you know, it will continue to grow and increase in terms of name recognition as we serve more and more clients. And as those clients progress through clinical trials into commercial phases, you know, our name will, my, our hope will be, you know, always out there when folks are thinking uh, and that need support in terms of development or manufacturing in gene therapy, um, vaccines, other areas, uh, you know, our goal is that our name comes up, that, you know, folks know who we are, and then our reputation will, will be the reason that the name comes up. It's early, but it, it appears that you're, it's already starting to have the effect, but we had discussed before your hope that this makes um, or solidifies Central Ohio as a hub for biotech yeah. and attracts uh, complementary maybe even competing <laughs> companies. Yeah. Um, so what, what have you seen in that regard? Yeah, no, we're, we're not alone. We're one of a number of companies in addition to a number of institutions locally that have come together to 
uh, work on a strategy for first Ohio and then central Ohio and more specifically our contribution within Columbus. So we, we are certainly have jumped in full heartedly to support that effort. And what that effort entails is really identifying what are the infrastructure needs, what are the workforce development needs, investment needs to make it a reality. And because we know we have a lot of the raw materials, to your point, you have nationwide, you have Ohio State, you have a number of other small uh, startups that are here, some larger biotechs, you know, they have uh, put on some stake here as well. So we're all working together, which is really uh, great to see. Um, we're also working with BioOhio uh, as well. So all of that's coming together to make that a reality. And we're doing our part, which is building the infrastructure and the capabilities uh, and really building the, the know-how and the team, you know, the experience of the development and the productions. And um, so I can see over the next few years that if, if we pull those levers that we're identifying, we definitely have a, a great shot at being one of the key centers for gene therapy in the country. What are some of the uh, processes, lessons learned, uh, et cetera, your, from your experience at Novartis that have been helpful here that you've been able to redeploy? Yeah, so, so really, I would say three of them that come to mind. One was, um, you know, being in Novartis, I was very fortunate to have had such a strong team around building talent and hiring talent. And, you know, you learn very quickly that no matter how large the company or how small, at the end of the day, it really is about having the right people with the right motivation and the right capabilities and then giving them the tools to do their job. So I've been able to take that experience from Novartis and hiring what I feel is a really good team. And when I started, it was myself and our GM. And now we have a CFO and we have a head of HR and a head of IT and a head of business development. So all these are new folks in the last few months. So I've kind of been able to leverage, I would say, that, that experience of just, you know, how to identify talent and hire the talent and attract them to, to this type of opportunity. And the, the second area is really around what I told you earlier, that scalability. We need to scale up our systems and how we do everything, our business, how we run our operations, how we conduct all of our contracts with our clients and really do all that systematically. So um, I've been able to kind of leverage that as well is having seen how to run, you know, multiple sites, much larger companies, much uh, larger operations really bring that to, to us so that we can make that smooth transition from, you know, a, a smaller company to a larger company. And then the last part I'd say is really a focus on the culture because one of the things that I found really amazing why I also took the job was I just love the culture, very innovative culture, very entrepreneurial, very um, problem solving. And I don't want to lose that. And um, also kind of been very cognizant of how do we keep that and nurture it. But at the same time, we have to make the evolution to being a for-profit commercial entity. And some of the makeup of our clients is going to change and some of the ways we do business will change. But I want to make sure I, I maintain that strong culture and that essence. So I think those three things I can certainly say I'm drawing upon my experience and my colleagues that I've worked with before. I have a very large network and I'm a firm believer in um, work together with other people, ask questions, ask them what would they do. 
and, and kind of synthesize all of those points of view and ask my team as well, and then uh, move it forward. So I've been very happy that I've been able to have value in that period of time since I joined. To that end, what's it been like working with the Research Institute and the hospital? Is it very close? Are they arm's length? They're very close. They're very interested in what we do. They're extremely supportive. Um, you have to recall this all started, you know, with the hospital making a bold decision 15 years ago that, hey, there's not enough capacity or know-how out there to produce these gene therapies for the early clinical trial. Let's create our own. So they have a tremendous vested interest in seeing this through to success. So they're, they're very involved um, at the right way, I would say, because they obviously let us run the operation and, and work with our clients and the team, but they really are always there in terms of that safety net, I call it, and that support and anything we need, they're, they're always there for us. So it's been a really good relationship. Are they the, the sole owner and source of capital or are there outside investors? There at the moment, the, the soul um, that will change uh, in the next uh, say month or so, we will um, we'll, we will have uh, additional investors, and that's by design. We wanted it to be that way. So, um, but they'll be the majority. One is um, is our goal. Is there a way to start to scale up within the physical space you have now, or is it just basically this building cannot open fast enough because it's going to be more yeah. than a year of construction, I believe. Yes, we do have, um, we've been working on ideas on how we can scale up within the existing facility. And the answer is yes. The existing facility, we haven't really looked at a strategy in which we would want to commercialize it, but certainly we can scale up in terms of quantity and numbers of lots we produce, volume. Yes, we, we've been really uh, working with the team on what would it take, how do we restructure the rooms and reconfigure the production trains, uh, where are the bottlenecks, and um, we certainly have the opportunity to bridge us, you know, between now and when the new facility opens, maximize really that existing facility. So yeah, that's the good news is we, we do have that ability. Um, under incentive agreements, it's expected to have, you know, 200, 300 jobs, but do you think this, you know, is that a low ball? Do you think this could be even bigger or is that about all you need? No, I think it's probably a conservative number. Um, I think if we really uh, see a lot of that demand that's out there, and of course we have to also assume that the whole field will move forward, right? Much more robustly that we would likely do even better than that in terms of the needs for personnel. But uh, I think we want to always make sure we put numbers out there that are very realistic, that we know, you know, will occur. But, um, you know, if all, everything goes really, really well, we, likely to do even better. Describe this company five years from now. What, what do you see? Yeah, I mean, I think five years from now, I see not only the initial facility, but probably it's expanded section of it because we, we have a phase one and phase two for this facility. I see us already having both facilities up and running, producing for, um, you know, that variety of clients, those early phase clients. We want to continue that bring things through research and early clinical and those commercial clients. And um, I also see us hopefully at the forefront of innovation because there's, even as a contract manufacturer, we bring um, a lot of value in terms of helping our clients 
optimize their process, improve their yields, bring new technology, more robotics, higher yields, and uh, higher quality. And um, so I see us also being at the forefront of the innovation that's out there. And, um, and also being more diverse, probably also, not just gene therapy, but other modalities, potentially vaccines or other types of, um, of vectors for other treatments out there for cell therapies, not just gene therapy. So I definitely see us being a major player reputation-wise by five years from now. I expect that if you're in the cell and gene therapy field and you say the word Andalin, people will say, oh, I know that their guys are in Columbus, Ohio. They know what they're doing and you should give them a call. So I definitely think, you know, in those intervening years, we will get there. Absolutely. Yeah, I mean, you mentioned vaccines and you think mm -hmm. about just talk about antiquated. I think they're still using chicken eggs for <laughs> some, some do, Yeah, I mean, we, we would not be using that technology, the chicken egg, but um, you would probably use more like the, the cell culture based um, or mRNA based or some of the more modern methods of making vaccines. But you're absolutely right. Some of them um, use chicken eggs still for, for production. Yeah. Yeah, so I mean, not to say that you would do it, but that there's definitely room for someone to come in and shake that up. Yes, no, that's a whole field. I'm really, I mean, I worked in the vaccine space for about five years and have always stayed very close to it. And it's, to me, I'm really delighted to see, you know, even though unfortunately it took something like COVID, which is not good, but to see innovation come finally to the vaccine area. Some of those vaccines that are coming out for COVID are much more modern in how they work than the traditional methodologies of producing and even how they mechanistically work in the body. So I'm just so excited to see how that area is really about to explode. You mentioned uh, already uh, anticipating an expansion to the building. Uh, do you have yeah. the room on the Carmack campus there? Yeah, we do. We, we are building um, essentially half of the building. So we're wow. building about half and we have the ability to double the capacity of the building. Wow. So yeah, even though, um, you know, the, the land, the way we've, we set out the property, we would be able to add a second phase. Wow, so that'd be, that'd be huge. That would be huge. And it means also that, like we talked about, technology is evolving very, very rapidly for gene therapy. So it will give us also the opportunity to um, move with the field and, be a part of inventing and modifying and creating some of the technology, but also actually seeing it come through to fruition with that second expansion we have. So what does this all mean for Central Ohio? You'll also be part of a larger innovation district with the yes. university. Um, so you're bringing these very high paying jobs, potentially uh, manufacturing things that cure a lot of uh, very terrible diseases or conditions. Yeah, for Central Ohio, I mean, and, and keep in mind, I've only lived in Central Ohio now for six months, so I'm also learning as much as the history of the area, right, and what kind of value the area has brought. But I can see us building a very symbiotic, almost ecosystem mm -hmm. of, you know, innovators, researchers, folks inventing and discovering um, companies that are bringing that then through clinical trial and you know, proof of concept, and then companies like ours that can supply that material for all stages, whether it's the beginning or the or the end phases, 
of the trials or the commercial product, the logistics side, you know, the computational side with the work with the universities, you know, the workforce development side, which I see is a big transformation for this area. There's already, like I said, a lot of the raw materials, but one of the things we've been learning is a lot of the talent in the area that is coming out of the academic centers nearby tend to leave and don't feel like there's enough jobs and variety of things to do in the area to really stay here and really grow with the areas. And I think we're going to be changing that um, in terms of uh, making this area of Ohio an area for healthcare. I think we're already there when it comes to like Cleveland Clinic or other places, right? So already it's headed in that direction, but even further with things like gene therapy and cell therapy, having this area of the country be um, one of those hubs where a lot of research is going on, but it's not just research, it's also taking that through through commercialization and having that whole ecosystem. And we absolutely have a shot at it because I think all those raw materials are here. There's certain things, of course, we have to do around infrastructure and certain investments, but a lot of the raw materials are here to do that and see it um, you know, come through to fruition. What, what kind of infrastructure is needed? So some of the infrastructure that you might see in areas like um, Research Triangle Park or Cambridge, Massachusetts or the Bay Area in California are really incubator type setups to allow small companies that have an idea, want to license an idea or a product to set up shop, to have you know, space to do research, but then to have that support as they grow and now need the material produced and need the material distributed and need logistical support to have that present in the area. And we, we don't currently have as much of that type of infrastructure as we could use to really attract a lot of the startups. And, um, and that's where you really need to, to start is those startups need capital, they need investors, but they need space, they need equipment, they need people that are willing to work in their labs and do this work. And, um, and this is one of the areas we need to focus on building, of course, is that infrastructure. So there's a Rev1 Ventures, but not mm -hmm. as much wet lab space in there. Mm -hmm. Correct. Yep. And if you look at that innovation district, I mean, one of the visions for that is not just only companies like ours that are certainly doing innovative work, but also that ability to bring in those really idea generating and uh, companies that are going to commercialize new new products. Well, thank you so much for uh, taking the time. Thank you so much, Carrie. You have a great day. All right, take care.